Are you staying hydrated? You need to get your hands on the water bottle everyone is talking about, the Hydro Jug. These durable and reusable jugs hold more than half a gallon of water, so you'll stay hydrated all day long. The Hydro Jug has helped me with my daily water intake, and I've definitely noticed a difference in my health. Some of my favorite things about the Hydro Jug is the wide mouth opening, which allows me to fill my jug with ice or fruit, which is so important. I need that ice cold water. I can also track how much water I've drank with a measurement scale, making sure I hit that half gallon a day. And the best part? The Hydro Jug is dishwasher safe, which means easy cleaning on my end. What more could you ask for in a water bottle? Aside from the convenience and function, it's just a cute looking bottle. I wish you could see all the bright and bold colors they have. On top of that, their neoprene accessory sleeves slip right over the bottle to keep your water cold and come in a variety of awesome patterns and colors to mix and match with your bottle. The carry loop and integrated handle makes it so easy to carry with you wherever you go. Each sleeve has a matching shoulder strap and two pockets to hold stuff like phones, keys, chapstick, or anything else you want. You can check HydroJug out at www.thehydrojug.com. Use discount code LOVEMURDER to get 10% off your order today. HydroJugs are seriously game changers for anyone on the go, or if you're just sitting and recording a podcast, because Andy and I are drinking out of ours (laughs) right now. Head to www.thehydrojug to customize your jug and use our code LOVEMURDER for 10% off your purchase. Okay, Jesse, I'm still lusting over our badass undercover PI from last week. What do you have for me this time around? When a minister's wife's suspicious death is ruled a suicide, her family mounts an arduous search for the truth, and ultimately, justice is served. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about hypocrisy, betrayal, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. It helps so much, guys. And we just also just super appreciate it. We had a wonderful week. We heard from a lot of you. And Andy got to send out a shit ton of stickers. Yeah, I got to send some out to Denmark. Hey, what's up, Nancy? Thanks so much for (laughs) reviewing and recommending us. Also, guys, yeah, if you recommend us in like true crime podcast groups or Reddit or something, we'll also send you stickers. So let us know. Just take a screenshot, DM us, or email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. Uh, Great. Okay. I'm going to launch right into the story then. Are you ready? Let's catapult right into it. The death of a child is always heartbreaking, no matter what their age. But the suicide of a child increases the pain tenfold. Linda Doolin was feeling that impossible grief in 2006 following the loss of her vivacious and lovely 31-year-old daughter, Carrie. Shrouded in her pain, at first, she didn't quite comprehend what her three dear sisters and closest niece were trying to tell her. With all of the sensitivity that they could muster, sisters Nancy, Kay, Jennifer, and niece Lindsay suggested that Carrie's death hadn't been a suicide. Then what's the alternative, Linda cried. The women were solemn. 
You know, Linda, what the alternative is. Linda's gut instinct and her heart were at war. There was no way she could believe that her daughter's husband, the father of her granddaughters, her last link to Carrie's beautiful family, and a man of the faith, no less, could have committed such an underhanded and murderous scheme. Could he? I want you to drop it, Linda said sadly, but Nancy Kay, Jennifer, and Lindsay refused to drop it. They began a tireless quest for the truth and justice that unveiled ugly secrets and painful realities. Soon, all of Texas and beyond would know that the devil can live in us all, even ones who preach the word of God. This is a story of lies, adultery, hypocrisy, but also bravery and justice. So let's talk about Linda and her daughter, Carrie, to get started. Okay. Linda was a University of Utah student when she gave birth to Carrie Lynn on August 13th, 1974. Linda's husband was also a student at the university, and the two were delighted to be young parents to their bubbly baby girl. However, tragedy struck, and Carrie's father, Scott, was killed in a motorcycle accident when Carrie was only a few months old. That's sad. It's so sad. I mean, it's so sad for Carrie. She never got a chance to really know her father at all, you know? Yeah. Linda was the oldest of four sisters who were super close-knit, so she decided to move to Waco, Texas, where her younger sister Kay was attending Baylor University and resume her studies there. So Baylor is a Baptist college, and Linda's family were all very religious. Her grandfather and uncle were both ministers, as were other members of their extended family, and her grandmother had played the organ in church until she was 99 years old. Whoa. Go grandma. Crazy. So Baylor was a good fit for Linda, who enrolled baby Carrie into Waco's First Baptist Church's daycare program, so she was able to continue her education as a single mother. And oh boy, did she continue her education. Linda eventually earned a doctorate in organizational communication and became a college professor. Wow. Well done, Linda. I think it's always impressive when people get advanced degrees or work their way up a corporate ladder when they're single mothers because it's just so difficult. Oh my God, yeah. And then also to just continue to educate people after. Like when you yes, get your doctorate give and then back. you actually, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And though tragedy struck again in 1977 when a fire ravaged Linda and Kay's apartment, which just so you guys know, everyone was safe. It was just that they lost almost everything they owned. Oh God. That too did end up having a silver lining when a friend of their neighbors named Jim Doolin offered the use of his pickup truck to move whatever belongings they had left. Okay. Before long, Linda fell for the kind, intelligent man who worked for the Department of Defense. Jim was particularly devoted to little Carrie, so it was to no one's surprise when Jim married Linda in 1979 and he adopted Carrie. Oh, yeah. So she was like five. Yeah. Yeah. The couple gave Carrie a little brother named Adam in 1980, and she was so excited to become a big sister. Carrie was a fun and joyful child who grew into a smart and popular teenager. She was an athletic cheerleader who scored good grades and was a friend to everybody. The only hiccup occurred when she was 18 and an unplanned pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage, but Carrie and her parents even took this in stride. Rather than shame Carrie for engaging in premarital sex, which is, of course, a no-no generally in the Baptist faith, they supported and loved her throughout the loss, and the family grew closer than ever. Okay, that's so sweet. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, they talked about this part in the book. Oh, by the way, I got my information (laughs) from 
<laughs> Deadly Little Secrets by Katherine Casey. And she specializes in Texas stories. We last used her for Celeste Beard. I think that was like episode 16. But yeah, so she does a lot of really interesting Texas crimes. So I'm sure we'll be hearing from Catherine again. And then there is also an episode of Killer Clergy on investigation discovery in case you guys didn't yet know who might be responsible for this. Killer <laughs> Clergy. Killer Clergy is the That's name of the show. has got a real ring. Does. Yeah. So Catherine in the book describes how when she was having a miscarriage, she was in the hospital and the doctors said that she was having a miscarriage, obviously. And her parents just like surrounded her with love. And they were like, we don't care how this happened. We just want you to be healthy and safe and happy and secure. And and we support you, you know? Yep. In 1993, Carrie graduated high school and enrolled in Texas Tech, where she pledged a sorority called Pi Beta Phi. She enjoyed her first year of school. In fact, she might have enjoyed it too much. Carrie told her mother, Linda, that she felt like there was too much partying at Texas Tech. Carrie wanted to come home to Waco and transfer to Baylor. She hoped to follow in her mother's footsteps by gaining her master's in education and teaching. Carrie also expressed to her mother her desire to meet a good Christian man and start thinking about the future. In 1994, Carrie did just that. She began a summer job at First Baptist in Waco, the very same church she attended daycare as a toddler. Oh. And there she met the Christian boy of her dreams, a charming young pastor in training named Matt Baker. So Matt was a couple years older than Carrie. He was born on September 7th, 1971, a second child for Barbara and Oscar Baker in Kerrville, Texas. The Bakers were also Baptist and considered exemplary Christians. Not only did the family attend three church services a week, but for nearly a decade during Matt's childhood, Barbara and Oscar were house parents of a group home taking in eight foster children at a time. Wow. Yeah, and they already had two biological children. Yeah. So at any given point, they were taking care of 10 kids. How? How? I don't know. Barbara in Catherine Casey's book is like, 10 was the perfect number. It was just like, it was enough that everyone could play together, but I could still give everyone attention. I'm like, whoa, I have two and I don't know if I give them each equal attention. <laughs> how can you give them adequate attention? Oh, that's crazy. Man. That's yeah, so many so kids. That's a lot of kids. But so, she is right. They can all play with each other and hang out, you know? Like yeah, and there's a variety of ages. So I'm sure some of the older kids helped with some of the younger kids. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, some children might have been a little bit irritated at the constant flow of kids that were coming in and taking up, you know, their parents' attention. Matt appeared to feel the opposite about his upbringing. Describing his own childhood, Matt said, I learned Christian love. We were all brothers and sisters. Sometimes the foster kids had been abused and the kids would show up with black eyes. But when they were in our home, they were family. Matt was a good student who played tuba and French horn in the band, worked as a student trainer with the basketball team, and tutored other students. He was affable, but mostly expressionless and like kind of not very memorable because other students reported having only vague but pleasant-ish memories of Matt in school. Like he didn't really stand out is what everyone okay. said. In sophomore year of high school, Matt decided he wanted to be a pastor. So with that goal in mind, he began Baylor University in 1990 with a major in church recreation and athletic training. Wow. He immediately began working as a student trainer for the school's football team, the Baylor Bears. 
Matt struck his teammates as pious and hardworking. Nearly everyone believed him to be a phenomenal Christian. Several people in the book said like he just seemed very devout, very pious. He always prayed before games. What's a student trainer? So it's essentially people who it sounded like to me in this book, like they're working with the coaching staff, but they also maintain all of the facilities. So, you know, obviously football is huge in Texas. So they need teams of people who make sure that, you know, the locker rooms are ready for games, that make sure all of the the stadiums ready, that the they're ready to welcome the away team. And they also, if they are good at what they do, they get to work with the coaching staff as well. That's so that's what they mean by trainers. It's Nate on Ted Lasso. Exactly. 100%. Okay. Which, oh my gosh, guys, if you are not watching Ted Lasso, you are missing out. <laughs> like if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing that you have a lot of true crime in your life. And sometimes that murder might get too much. And when you need a break, go turn on Ted Lasso because it is a rainbow in a jar on your TV screen. It's seriously the most feel-good thing ever. It really is. It's the perfect antidote to massive amounts of murder consumption. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, it is like Nate on Ted Lasso, basically. And I guess there was an entire program because that was one of his majors that was in that discipline. Wild. So even though all of like his co-student trainers said that he was a good Christian, there were some rumors about him that he was kind of girl crazy in an extreme way. Like he was aggressive with women, like at parties, he would try to corner women and try to kiss them. And for the most part, it seemed like, you know, I don't know whether it's a sign of the times. I mean, the nineties weren't super long ago, but they were all just kind of like, oh, you know what? He's just kind of horny. That's just who he is. And You know, he always backed down when he was rejected. So no harm, no foul, right? That was kind of what his friends thought. Well, wrong. Clearly, (laughs) his predatory behavior was going unchecked. And as it often does, he grew bolder. Halfway through his sophomore year, an incident occurred that would scar a young woman for the rest of her life. Oh, my God, no. During finals week, a freshman girl named Laura Wilson, who did participate in um, Catherine Casey's book, who was also on the training team, was cleaning the visitor's locker room after hours. Apparently, there was a big playoff game coming up. So she was staying after hours pretty much by herself to clean this locker room. And Matt, who was an upperclassman, she's a freshman, he's a sophomore, offered to help her. And the two were alone. And at first, he just started being kind of annoying to her. He was, like, teasing her. He was poking her from behind with a broom. Oh, my God. And so it just was very sophomoric and immature. But then as she was cleaning a bathroom stall, he rushed in and pinned her hands behind her back. Okay, guys, I got to give you a trigger warning for sexual assault right now. So you might want to skip ahead. So, yes, he pinned her hands behind her back. He aggressively forced himself against her and started kissing her. So she struggled against him and yelled for help, but he refused to stop. He ultimately picked her up in a bear hug, forced her on top of a sink, and then he forced her legs open and like pushed his body between her legs. Oh my God, what a creep. Yeah. And so at this point, he's like trying to make out with her. He's basically dry humping her. So she was completely 
completely panicked, and she used the only weapon available to her, her teeth. Ugh, I was going to say her knee into her is nuts, but Yeah, but he had, like, put her her legs, like, she couldn't even get her knee to his crotch. So good girl. She bit him as hard as she could in the shoulder. So he was totally startled and caught off guard and he momentarily let go. And so she started running for the door, but he was able to catch up to her. He picked her up. He wrestled her to a bench where he once again overpowered her, spread her legs and fondled her. Okay. Creep. I mean, this guy's a monster. So she started screaming again, but he totally ignored her. And she said later that it probably was a few minutes, but it felt like hours where she realized she was completely powerless and nobody was coming to help her. And he suddenly just stopped and he released her and he said, I'm done. And he left the room as if nothing had happened. Why? Because he like jizzed his pants. That's what I'm guessing. Okay. He's disgusting. Disgusting. I'm done. You're disgusting. Yeah. I mean, thank God that she he was done. But yeah, he's a, a revolting human being. So Laura was shaking and crying. And Ugh. she said later that she was in such shock that she just kept cleaning the bathroom. She was like, I don't, I don't know totally. what to do. You know? And by the time she finished, she was hysterically crying because it was like starting to register. So she called her mother from a payphone in the stadium and her mother told her to go to the head trainer, a man named Mike Sims. And then her parents rushed over. So her parents accompanied her to a meeting with Sims where Matt was called into the meeting and he didn't deny what had happened. And he really couldn't because Laura's bite mark was still visibly apparent on his shoulder. Uh, (laughs) So it's like, yeah, she wouldn't have done that if it was just all fun and games. Straight up defense wound. Yeah. So he said his lame excuse was that he hadn't realized he was hurting her. What? She was screaming for help. So Sims told Matt that he would be disciplined for his transgression. But of course, it was Laura who paid the price. Matt told people that he had simply poked her with a broom and that she had grossly overreacted and she was lying about everything. Um, That's disgusting. Yep. So soon after that, because he was... You know, he was a sophomore, so he'd been on the team, you know, a year earlier. She's just basically a new freshman. He got everyone on his team. She said that other trainers were gossiping about her behind her back. Some people even taunted her to her face, calling her a liar. She was so devastated by this that she dropped out of the training program and she ended up leaving Baylor before the semester even ended. Whoa. For years after, Laura endured nightmares of being pinned down powerlessly while Matt fondled her, while also hearing the mocking laughter of the other student trainers. She would wake up crying. Oh, my God, this poor baby. I know. And, you know, she was so strong, like, reporting it and later on talking to Catherine Casey and much down the road she speaks to authorities again. It is so hard to experience this, and it's even harder to talk about it. I mean, most sexual assaults go unreported because it re-traumatizes the victim to have to discuss this. And especially in her situation, having people say that she was a liar. I mean, that part of was almost as traumatizing as the actual sexual assault. It's like society back then trained you to not say anything anyway because you were going to get humiliated or ashamed. Yeah. It's so powerful and definitely thank you. I know that we do have some listeners who are victims of sexual assault and and we want you to know that our hearts go out to you. 
we can relate in some areas of our life, you know, and, and we love you guys and more power to you for surviving and thriving and, and, you know, living your life best as you can. So, yeah, I mean, Laura's life sucked and it would take years and years and years in therapy for her to feel normal again. But for Matt, you know what his punishment was? He didn't get to do extracurricular activities. Okay. This is making me like fume. Mm -hmm. That was his total punishment. He got to maintain his grades, stay in school. He got all of his friends. And he was even offered a coveted internship with First Baptist Church only one month after the assault. I'm just going to not say anything. Uh, Yeah. And the man who hired him was a professor at Baylor. So you'd think he'd be aware of what transpired in the university, But he said later that there was nothing flagged on Matt's academic record, so he had no idea. So therefore, Matt was allowed to oversee a recreation center and summer youth camp, which means he was put in a position of authority over vulnerable teenage girls. Yeah, it's so smart. So smart with a record of assaulting women. Mm Mm-hmm. It was at First Baptist in this position that Matt Baker met sweet Carrie and Carrie truly believed the young preacher to be to be the answer to her prayers. Obviously, she had no idea no, what kind of human he was. Matt was a boyish 23. He looked really young when they met with a round face and pale blue eyes. He was not especially tall at only 5'7", and Carrie with her blonde bob and big smile was just about as tall as him when she wore heels. She was about to be a sophomore and he was a rising senior when they met and they seemed perfectly matched. They were two college students from good families who wanted to help kids and live a life in service to God. Mm -hmm. The relationship moved extremely quickly and the couple married on August 20th, 1994 after only a few months of dating. (sighs) Love murder red flag right there. Biggest red flag. Carrie was so certain and her joy was so infectious that her family members couldn't help but be happy for her. But secretly, they all had reservations about Matt. Oh, really? Yeah, they like they knew that the warning signs were there. Younger cousin Lindsay was totally skeeved out because Matt would like pretend to grab her boobs, like do that air honking thing. Like like honk honk. honk. Yeah. Like when he saw her. Ew. And how old was she? She was in her, like, late teens. Like, she's, like, a few years younger than Carrie. So she's in her teens at this point. So she also said that Matt would give her these, like, long, creepy, lingering hugs that he seemed to be enjoying too much, which is so gross. Yeah. And the whole family had noticed how Matt didn't mix with the other men at get-togethers. He preferred to hover around Carrie and join the women as they chatted. So, like, he could never leave her alone. It was very weird. And they also thought it was strange that at the wedding, one of their family friends, like one of the Doolin family friends, ended up being his best man because Carrie told her family that he had no friends whatsoever, male or female. Another red flag. Another red flag. A third red flag was that she never went anywhere without him. He took her to her hair appointments, like doctor appointments, would just sit and wait for her. And her parents were like, mm, that's not healthy. And she she totally did not see that it wasn't healthy. She thought it was like he was so in love with her and they just had such a nice time together that they wanted to do everything together, you know? Uh, yeah. 
get a She life. didn't see that it was controlling. I totally understand this one. I had a, a boyfriend in my early 20s who was completely controlling. And I had no idea. I was just like, he loves being with me all the time. Like he wants to like take me to work and pick me up from work and actually come into my work and take me to this and do this. I'm like, it's so nice. We're together all the time. I had no idea. So I could totally understand how she didn't get this, you know, but her family, of course, flagged that this was very weird. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's just more creepiness. Like guys, uh, her book is like 400, 500 pages and it would take me three hours to tell you every incident of Matt being creepy. But there's another time that a 14-year-old cousin of Carrie's was wearing a short skirt and a P apparently asked her multiple times if she was wearing panties under it. Oh my God. Yeah. She was 14? 14 years old. So yeah, this certainly does not seem like the godly behavior of a minister in training. Especially one that wanted to be like a youth minister, you know? Or does it? (laughs) Yeah. The family was absolutely right to be concerned. At First Baptist, right around the time of Carrie and Matt's wedding, two women came forward against Matt with complaints of sexual harassment. The first was a teenage gymnast who went to a summer camp at the church and reported to the secretary that Matt had tried to corner her and suggested that they have sex behind some wreck bins that contained roller skates. Oh, my God. I know. She alleged at another time he grabbed her butt and tried to convince her to meet him upstairs. Matt flatly denied the allegations, and the director of the church program believed it was a he-said-she-said situation. So we'll believe the he-said always. Uh Uh-huh. His only reprimand was that he told Matt to stop putting himself in a position to be alone with teenage girls. That, like, that was the reprimand. (laughs) So only a few weeks later, another woman came forward, this time a middle-aged custodian who worked in the camp, and she said that Matt had asked her to have sex with him. According to the woman, Matt had said, I know what it's like to be with a young woman. I'd like to know what it's like to be with a mature woman. How old is middle-aged? I know it's probably like our age. It's probably like 37 (laughs) back in the 90s. So yeah, so not only is that gross, it's also insulting. Yeah, a mature woman. Yeah, very rude. Prick. (laughs) Jake Roberts, who was the director of the program, confronted Matt on the last day of camp with the latest allegations. And once again, Matt called his accuser a liar. And they're not thinking it's strange at all that a young gymnast, teenage girl, and a quote unquote middle aged, you say custodian? Yeah, custodian, both are the same thing. Yeah. So from Catherine Casey's book, Apparently, Roberts told his young employee, I don't know what's going on here, but if you're doing this kind of thing, you'll ruin your life. You need to get professional help. I like that that it's he'll ruin his life, not the women he's assaulting or harassing. Yeah, and not making the church or any sort of spiritual path look bad. I mean, you're literally, he wants to be a man of God and a man of the church, and you're not concerned about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You guys are in a church, man. So (laughs) Matt, again, denied that he'd done anything improper, but Roberts felt less than sure he could believe him, obviously. Yet he had no proof, and he later said that he was unwilling to ruin a young man's career based on unproven accusations. I do think that's a refrain that I think is getting brought up a lot more today, is that we have to be more interested in protecting women from violence and sexual harm than we are at protecting young men's careers. 
yeah, make these little fuckers accountable. Mm-hmm. So Matt did go on working for the church for an additional year until August of 1995, and Roberts did not hear of any further incidents after that, which doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't. It just, they weren't reported anymore. Yeah, yeah. So Lindsay, Carrie's cousin, also worked at First Baptist, and she heard the rumors. So she told her mother, Nancy, who told Linda, when Linda gently asked her daughter about the allegations, Carrie was resolutely on her new husband's side. She said both women had crushes on Matt, and when he rejected them, they retaliated by making up ludicrous stories against him. Mm. Mm. Linda decided to believe her daughter and her son-in-law. Linda later said, my daughter said that the women were lying. Carrie believed Matt and we believed Carrie. So Matt left First Baptist in August of 1995 and he began a new job at the Family Y running their after-school program. Oh God. Mm -hmm. He graduated Baylor that December. In January of 1996, he assaulted a young student worker named Jackie on her last day before returning to college. While she was working, Matt slipped behind her and grabbed her breasts. Okay, that's nightmarish. Ugh, I know. Again, guys, sorry, we're going to talk about sexual assault again for a little bit, just to let you know. Like, I don't want anyone touching me right now, but, like, for someone to come up behind me and, like, touch, Surprise like, you and, and that you. vulnerable of a mm -hmm. place on your body. So she, like, spun around, told him no, pushed him away, but Matt didn't back off. Instead, he lunged at her and tried to kiss her while groping her between the legs. As she attempted to fight him off, he grabbed her hand and forced it to his pants on top of his erect penis. Ugh. Well, she screamed, no, Matt told her, I just want to F you right here and pushed her against a wall. Luckily, right then the phone rang and Matt stopped because he was spooked. Jackie was shaken, but she didn't immediately report what happened because it was her last day at work and she was like, okay, maybe this was about me. She was like, I was wearing something that was like nicer than I usually wear because it was my like last day. Maybe this is just an isolated event and I'm out of there so I don't have to deal with it. I'm just gone, you know? So while this horror is going on, poor Carrie is obviously none the wiser and she is now pregnant with their first child. So this was a little girl born on April 22nd, 1996, oh, named God. Kenzie. So before little Kenzie was even two months old, three additional teenage girls reported Matt of sexual harassment. When Jackie heard that the other women and girls were being preyed upon by Matt as well, she felt sick to her stomach. She decided to come forward and also report Matt to his boss. Good girl. Yeah. June 14th, the Family Y administrator fired Matt in his termination letter, effective immediately, it said he was being fired for lack of positive influence and direction of supervised staff and for inappropriate behavior toward female staff members. Okay, why? Yeah, finally, here we go. So they have a newborn baby and he just lost his job. So guess what he told Carrie this time? Oh, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't oh, can't you wouldn't really guess get into this one. The, I can't get into the brain of a creep. Yeah, this one is wild. He said that he was trying to counsel the girls against becoming sexually active before marriage and that they misinterpreted his intentions. He was helping them, of course. <laughs> this guy. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. It's such a stretch. This time, Carrie's family was less keen to let Matt off the hook, but Carrie seemed to believe and support her husband 100%. 
Oh, God. Yeah, she even talked to, like, later on when he becomes, like, a fully-fledged minister, she was talking to another woman who was married to a guy who was in seminary. And she was like, yeah, you just have to watch out when you're married to a minister. Like, everybody wants to take your husband down, and they're jealous of you, and they want your man, and they'll say terrible things about him. But, you know, you just got to stand by your man because that's just the way it is. Like, she 100% fully believed what her husband was telling her. I mean, he had to marry someone like that whether it was just how pure and innocent and which ends up being a little naive, you know, he needed to yeah. have that type of partner so that he could pull this shit. 100%. Could you imagine like, I mean, I'd like to think that we wouldn't be in that position probably because we do a murder podcast and we like hear all this shit, but. 100%. I believe that where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, especially like maybe if there was one incident that was like weird and kind of gray area like I would I would maybe not immediately divorce but if there's two three four five I'd be like I don't care what your excuses are you're out of here you know yeah but obviously we don't have the same perspective that Carrie had we don't we don't know what it was like to be in her marriage we don't know anything about how he brainwashed her you know so we can't say what we would do in that situation to be honest no he just he definitely needed someone who was going to have his back through this. Yeah. And and she was, she was a very, he picked a very fiercely loyal person. Carrie was, she would fight for the people she loved. I mean, she was just a brilliant daughter and, and sister and niece and cousin. And like, she was just, would do anything for the people she loved. So it was not surprising to her family how hard she fought for her husband, you know? But that's going to make it that much harder for the people who love her too. Exactly, exactly. And that's why they couldn't turn their back on Matt or really approach her about any of this stuff because they knew that she would respond very loyally to Matt. Yeah. So that fall, Matt joined the seminary at Baylor. Again, no one checked into his past whatsoever when he was accepted into the seminary program. And Carrie began a master's in education at Baylor as well. Yeah, I'm assuming they didn't call the Y for reference, huh? Clearly not. Clearly he left not. That I'm one sure off he his resume. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. yeah. Cause he was like finishing up school while he was there. So I'm sure it was very convenient to leave it off. So after graduation, Matt began to pastor to churches, but he hardly stayed in any place for more than a year before he was let go for inappropriate behavior. Wow. According to a former member of the Baptist General Convention of Texas, they had no concrete way of hiring or tracking down sexual predators within their clergy members. So this is what they said to Catherine Casey. We strongly suggest churches do background checks, but we can't force them. And we can't tell them whom to hire. Basically, to be called a pastor of a Baptist church, all you have to do is have a church vote to hire you. We don't license or ordain pastors. That's done by individual churches. When it comes to ministerial misconduct, including sexual abuse, the Baptist General Convention of Texas keeps complaints on file, yet not all of the churches report. Many just fire the offending pastor or ask him to find something else and move on. Send him to another church. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. they, they're like, that. he's your problem now. Mm-hmm. They want to get rid of their problem. They don't worry about where that pastor goes next and what he might do while he's there. How do they not see that this is like totally fucked up? I mean... Sexual misconduct and the abuse of power by religious leaders, of course, is a problem in many faiths. And I hope that we are working towards rectifying that. I mean, I'd like to hope that we are, but obviously I'm not too involved in religion. And it is, it really is such a huge fucking shame because 
you know, churches do have such a special place in communities and they provide so much, like thinking about even Linda and Carrie, how they provided daycare and how, you know, they do such a great service. And for so many, they're so spiritually edifying. So to have these wolves in sheep's clothing preying on this population and giving religion a bad name is terrible. It's horrible. And it's such a, I feel like it's a small percentage of the wolves, you know, but kind of, I was, I was really shocked because Catherine Casey reported in her book that when it comes to Baptists, a study was conducted in 1991 by the Fuller Institute of Church Growth that came to a startling conclusion, 37% of ministers interviewed confessed to inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church. Oh my God, my brain just like melted. Yep. A later Baylor study concluded that one out of 33 women in Baptist congregations had been victims of clerical sexual misconduct. Whoa, I hope that's gotten better since the 90s, but I don't have a lot of hope, you know? You don't have a lot of faith. (laughs) Good one. That's a good one. So a lot of the times the church would simply ask Matt to resign. So he would tell Carrie or other family members that he quit because of X, Y, and Z. It wasn't a good fit. He didn't like the church board, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of times nobody even knew about the sexual misconduct. It was just like, I just didn't like the job, you know? Yep, of course. And he's so great at lying about all of his (laughs) sexual... Yes, he he lies about everything. And everyone just seems to believe him. So I'm inclined to believe he was probably a good liar. Yep. Despite all of this, the family was overjoyed when their second daughter, Cassidy, was born on November 20th of 1997. Nothing could dampen Carrie's enthusiasm for her husband and her growing family, not even the fact that the family computer had become so riddled with pornography that it was virtually unusable. Stop. Oh my God, it's like (laughs) glitching titties. It it is. That's basically what it was. Like she was afraid that her children would use it because it was like all these like, pop-ups of like you're like, you're like playing sims sex partners in and your it, area. yeah Ooh, you're so handsome let's chat you know so naturally carrie's like okay we got to get this computer out of here what if one of the kids like they were little but still what if they accidentally see this you know so she gave it to adam her brother and she was like he was in college and she's like can you figure out how to get all this porn off this computer slash also if you can you can figure you can keep it because i don't even know what to do with this and he couldn't. So Adam gave it to his dad to see like his dad, you know, Jim works at the Department of Defense. He's like, maybe he can give it to a colleague there. They could clean it up. And the colleague's like, no, just throw this computer straight in the trash. It is never, they're like, it's in the hard drive. Spray, all this porn. spray gasoline on it. Throw a match in. Yeah. Just get this thing away from me. And so Jim was like, knew that the computer came from Matt and was like, whoa, a lot of pornography on that computer, huh, Matt? And Matt was like, Oh, yeah. I mean, Adam's a college student. So, you know, you never know what those college students are up to. And tried to blame it on Adam. What a little piece of shit. (laughs) Bold. So, yeah. So, Carrie did not get to linger long on the porn issue, though, because only days after little Cassidy turned one, she started getting terrible seizures. And, oh, no. Uh-huh. She's so little. Just literally they talked about how they at first thought she just had too much birthday cake, and that's why she was getting sick. Within days, they discovered that she had a brain tumor that would definitely kill her if not removed. Oh, my God. So... The good news was that they could operate, but the bad news was that the operation to save Cassidy's life was very, very long. And 
it would require her being under anesthesia for many hours, which apparently little bodies, their lungs are not quite developed enough to handle like being on a respirator that long. Okay. So basically the doctors were like, if you don't do the surgery to remove the tumor, she will die. But if you do do the surgery, there's still a 50% chance that she'll die. Oh my God. I truly, truly, truly cannot imagine um, being put in that situation. But of course, you're going to pick the option that might save her life, obviously. Uh, Yep, yep, yep. So they did go for the surgery and the operation was successful. They got the entire tumor out. It had really clean lines. It was, you know, basically they said in the book, it just basically popped right out. But within hours, Cassie developed pulmonary edema meaning her chest was filling with fluid and the doctors expected that she would die. Oh my God. On Thanksgiving day, her surgeon performed a, like a Hail Mary basically by cutting a trichotomy in Cassidy's throat to insert a tube for a respirator and put her in a medically induced coma so the body would heal itself. Baby Cassidy remained in the pediatric ICU for months while Matt and Carrie took turns being by her side. So Carrie's aunts and cousins made sure to visit and lend support as much as possible. On one of these visits, Lindsay brought her 20-year-old friend, Aaron. Only two people were allowed by Cassidy's bedside at any given time. So Lindsay left Aaron with Matt in the waiting room while she went to see Cassidy with Carrie. Oh, Mm -hmm. no. So this is an account from Deadly Little Secrets. Oh, my God. And this is his little baby who's His babies in the ICU, in the medically induced coma. When Carrie and Lindsay left to see Cassidy, Aaron claimed a chair in front of a television in the game room and began playing a Mario video game with a young boy, a cancer patient who had lost all of his hair. Before long, Matt sat beside her. I'm so sorry about your daughter being so ill, Aaron said. I hope she gets better. You know, Matt said, leaning in toward her. You're a beautiful girl. Aaron concentrated on the video game but said, thank you. Matt moved closer, placing his hand on her leg. They gave us a room to stay in while Cassidy's here. It's close. Would you like to see it? No, she said, lifting his hand and removing it. Of course not. Matt, however, wasn't ready to give up. Lindsay and Carrie will be gone at least 15 minutes. The room is right down the hall. He placed his hand on her upper thigh. Again, Aaron moved his hand away. No, she said even more forcefully. With that, Matt stood up and Aaron thought maybe it was over, but then she felt his hands on her shoulders rubbing them. Oh my God revolted, Aaron bolted up and walked away toward the windows. There she stood, looking out at the hallway in the direction of Cassidy's room. She felt relief flood through her when Carrie and Lindsay emerged, peeling off their protective clothing. To Aaron's disgust, Matt walked over to Carrie and Lindsay as if nothing had happened. So Aaron told Lindsay, of course, who in turn told her mother, who decided not to burden Linda or Carrie with this knowledge while their daughter and granddaughter was potentially dying. Nancy believed that they had enough on their plates without a perverted husband to add to the mix, but she certainly didn't forget. Okay. I mean, that's a hard call to make, you know? It's such a hard call to make, but also, like, Lindsay had already come forward with the Hong Kong. Yeah, Lindsay knew. And I don't know how much Lindsay or Nancy, you know, told Carrie, though, before. How about we just stop leaving any women alone in a room with him? Yeah. Exactly. And I guess Lindsay did say something to Aaron on their way there. She's like, just so you know, my cousin's husband is a creep. He's probably going to hit on you, you know? And Aaron's like, we're in a hospital. We're in like 
the oncology, pediatric oncology unit. Like, how could he hit on me? She was just kind of like, could not believe it. And then it happened. And she was like, whoa, okay, this guy is a dirtbag. Yeah, know? it's, I hate to say that women just need to stop being in a room alone with him. But obviously due to the circumstances with his daughter also being ill, if you're going to decide to not say anything, then that's the route that they can't have Lindsay or any of her friends around him. <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. I mean, yeah. I mean, we have to stop taking the onus off women, you yes. know, for just yes. living, <laughs> for <Yes>. existing. <laughs> I agree with you. But yeah, in this case, you have to be protective if you got, if you know that he's a predator and you're not reporting him, you know? Yeah. yeah. So miraculously, Cassidy improved and Matt and Carrie were able to bring the baby home in late February. So she still required the trach and a feeding tube. So the bakers learned that, like they basically learned how to care for their medically compromised child. And they also hired a home healthcare aide to administer to Cassidy throughout the day. All of Cassidy's doctors totally ensured the family that she was now out of the woods. She was just going to get stronger and better every day. Oh my God. That's why it came as a horrible shock when Matt checked on Cassidy one night a little past midnight and found the tiny child not breathing. What? Yep. For some reason, Matt hadn't allowed Carrie to put on Cassidy's monitor. So she had one of those owlet type things like you have for Echo. Yeah, like a monitor from the hospital probably at that time. At that time, it was like that. Yeah. And what does it do? It Like with Echo, it just tells you her oxygen levels. It tells me her oxygen and heart rate. And my mom said that when she was, you know, because she's a NICU nurse, when she brought me home from the hospital in 85, she asked if she could bring a monitor home because she had been, she's been a NICU nurse, but she's always cared for babies with a monitor. And it was way yeah. before any, anything like the owlet existed. So I'm sure that they had some sort of like medical grade version of it back then. But yeah, it monitors her heart rate and oxygen levels. So if either of those are obstructed, then we know. Exactly. And for some reason that night, like Carrie wanted to put it on. He was like, no, she doesn't need it or something. There was some issue and she wasn't wearing it. So clearly no alarm went off. And Carrie also noted that later he had gotten up personally to go check on the baby like three times that night. And that was when he discovered that she wasn't breathing. So he called 911 and he ordered Carrie to stand by the door and wait for the ambulance while he alone stayed in Cassidy's room, which is really suspect. So the EMTs rushed the baby to the hospital, but the doctors at the ER could not resuscitate her. Cassidy passed away. Okay, that's so sad she went through all of that. And survived. And then this happened. I can't imagine. So obviously, Carrie was plunged into a deep depression. Her mother, Linda, suggested that she go see a family friend who was a friend of Kay's, which is one of Linda's sisters, um, who was a grief counselor named Joanne Bristol. Carrie would go on to see Joanne for several months after Cassidy's death. To compound the baker's grief, Cassidy's pediatric oncologist called CPS, that's Child Protective Services if you're outside of the U.S., she called CPS on them when she heard that Cassidy died. In her opinion, Cassidy had been so improved that only parental neglect or tampering could have caused her death. Whoa. Yep. So CPS did investigate the bakers, but no charges were ever brought up and suspicion was pretty much dropped after a single home visit. They, you know, met a good pastor with another healthy child and they also had employed the home health aide. So like it seemed like the family had done everything they could. 
And I guess they interviewed the home health aide and she didn't see any red flags. So the matter was just totally dropped. However, the incident stuck with Carrie and she did harbor suspicions about Cassidy's death. Carrie told a close friend that she questioned Matt's version of the events of the night of Cassidy's death. Her mistrust of her husband only increased her grief and depression. Although Carrie's spirits were momentarily lifted in late 1999 when she discovered that she was pregnant once more with a little girl. Whoa. Yeah. So she gave birth to a perfectly healthy baby girl on July 18th, 2000 and named her Grace for the grace of God for allowing them to have another child following such an epic loss. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for us, having new babies, full-time jobs, a podcast, and just the general state of the world right now can cause major anxiety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Love Murder listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. Carrie was in love with her new baby, but still grappled with feelings of anxiety, depression, and insomnia. A doctor prescribed Ambien, but she never refilled the prescription, saying that she didn't like being so knocked out with her young babies in the home. Instead, she ended up using the generic for the -the over-the-counter sleep aid, Unisom. Oh, we know that one. We know that one. That like got (laughs) us through our pregnancies. (laughs) Literally third trimester. Yeah. That was like my favorite thing in the world. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I called them my sleepies and I couldn't go to sleep without them. I'm like, where are my sleepies? (laughs) So yeah, as if this woman doesn't have enough to deal with, Carrie called Linda in spring of 2002 and reported that someone had stolen the baker's debit card and used their entire bank account to call phone sex hotlines and buy porn on the internet. I wonder who that could be. Mm, She had discovered it when she realized their account was overdrawn and Matt had told her, oh, I forgot to mention that my debit card was stolen. So of course it must be the thief. It must be the super horny thief (laughs) who needed to just wank all day on the phone. Oh, Oh, the nineties. Oh, the nineties. Also, I just feel like super horny thief would be like a good band name. (laughs) Super horny thief. (laughs) It was like way harder to like watch and do porn stuff in the nineties. Like now you can just literally go to a website. Yeah. And it's free. You it's know, like 
Such a better porn world now. Such a better porn world for people. I mean, 90s, I think, was starting. I think you could probably, I mean, you had to buy it on the internet, clearly. But, like, it's a little better than having to go to a video store and go to the creepy section in the back with, like, a curtain. Like, I remember there was, like, that section in, like, our local Mr. Movie. And it was like my mom would like keep me away from the men who were coming out of the back room. It's like, and we'll check out later, girl. Let's uh, let's uh, check out another movie. Maybe we'll get two today. <laughs> uh, if you're old enough to remember the creepy curtain room, say oh. what up. <laughs> and video stores in general. In general, yeah. So yeah, Carrie was so convinced of her husband's innocence that she went down to the bank and told them that the charges were fraudulent. She said she hadn't bought porn and her husband, a Baptist minister, certainly hadn't. Can you imagine the bank people's <laughs> eyes like literally just rolling in the full back of their head? Like, yeah, apparently they were like, yeah, I'm not going to argue with this. You could have a free refund. Like, we're not going here. OK. OK, lady. And we're not going to touch this one with a 10 foot cross. Pole. <laughs> yeah. So throughout this period, Matt continued to bounce from church to church and Carrie began teaching elementary school. In 2005, Matt got a job with the Waco Center for Youth, which was a residential facility for 13 to 17 year olds with emotional or behavioral problems. The Doolins also helped Matt get a pastor role at their church, which was called Crossroads Baptist because, of course, Waco, Texas is Carrie's hometown. It was there that Matt met a beautiful 23-year-old single mother named Vanessa Bowles, who happened to be the music minister's daughter. Vanessa was raised strict Southern Baptist by loving parents and attended Mary Hardin Baylor University, another conservative Baptist college. In December of 2004, Vanessa married a man who was 20 years older than she was. Whoa. Yeah, Vanessa gave birth to a little girl named Lily eight months later in August of 2005. However, this was not a happy time for the little family because only a month after Lily's birth, Vanessa and her husband separated. In his petition of divorce, the husband requested a DNA test, claiming that he had taken an at-home paternity test that showed he was not the father. Uh-oh. Vanessa argued that the child was legally of the marriage and that she should receive child support and alimony. On October 25th, the DNA test came back with the probability of paternity at 0%. Oh, my God. Vanessa was denied support and a divorce was finalized that December. Vanessa moved back in with her parents and began attending night school to finish her degree in education. She also began attending Crossroads Baptist, which is where she met and befriended Carrie and Matt Baker. So little Lily was like a a tiny, blonde, blue-eyed baby who actually reminded Carrie of Cassidy. And Vanessa was studying to be a teacher just like Carrie. So Carrie did take a shine to the young mother and daughter. And Matt took a shine to Vanessa as well in a completely different manner. During Christmas week of 2006, Matt overheard Vanessa talking to a friend about dating after her recent divorce. According to author Catherine Casey, here's what happened next. Oh, a new guy is calling me. You know, I'm getting a divorce. I don't know if I can really like, if I can date again. Later, Vanessa would say that that was when Matt Baker motioned for her to follow him into a hallway. She did. And when they got away from the others, he said, will you really? Will I what? She responded. Will you really date your pastor? Vanessa just looked at him until he spoke again. Well, I've had a vasectomy, so I can't get you pregnant. And I don't have any sexually transmitted diseases. 
Okay, A, is that even true about his vasectomy? Not, I mean, I don't know. I absolutely don't know. It wasn't reported in the book other and than B, this. And B, like, no one asked you for your disclaimer about your STDs. That is a piss poor come online, I gotta say. Totally. So she just said, have you done that before? She asked. And Matt nodded and said, Carrie is clueless. Whoa. By January of 2006, Carrie could already feel a shift in her marriage as Matt became disinterested in sex, romance, or really anything to do with her. She had gained some weight over the years, which is, I mean, happens to literally all of us when you have kids and life and work and you're just getting older. You know what happens? Yeah. Yeah. But she like didn't see it like that. She saw it as like, I've let myself go and is my problem that he's not attracted to me. I'm also sure he did his fair share of letting her know that too. 100%. Yes, absolutely. So Carrie obtained a diet drug called Fentermine and committed herself to strict diet to lose weight. Yeah. Uh, She also repeatedly told Matt through email how committed she was to improving their sex life and marriage in general. Through email back, Matt seemed receptive, but in reality, around this time, neighbors noticed a pretty young blonde visiting the baker's house every Friday when Carrie and the girls were at school and Matt had the day off. Gross. Mm-hmm. As the seventh anniversary of Cassidy's death rolled around, Carrie's loved ones rallied around her for strength. But even though she took the day off work to celebrate Cassidy's life, and of course she was sad, She seemed mentally well and looking forward to the future. Carrie said that she had been stuck in the denial phase of grief for a very long time, but she finally understood that Cassidy wasn't coming back. She also felt now that she had a higher calling to help other parents of deceased children, which she planned on doing more of in the coming year. That's special. Yeah, I think that she was coming out of that grief tunnel and being like, how can I help others, you know? It's a very exclusive club that no one wants to be in. And that no one can truly understand until it's happened to them. And so if you can do something like what Carrie wants to do here and channel that terrible, terrible thing into something positive for other people, I think that's a very admirable quality. Absolutely. So she was like, you know what? Every year I'm super sad, but this year I resolved to do more to help others. And... All of her friends and family said that she seemed like less affected by the anniversary of Cassidy's death and more upset about the disintegration of her marriage. And she had kind of a growing fear of Matt, actually. Oh. According to her friend Jill, around this time, Carrie confided that she believed Matt was having an affair, though she didn't disclose who it was with or how she knew. Carrie also told her mother that while looking for a pen in Matt's briefcase, she had discovered a container filled with crushed pills. She couldn't imagine why Matt would have them. When she confronted him, Matt told her that often the residents at Waco Youth Center would hide the pills rather than take them, like basically like spit them out in random places. So he's like, they must have somehow spit them out into my briefcase, which, you know, at this point, Carrie's deeply skeptical because she's like, yeah, they spit them out and then crush them and then put them in a container. What the fuck? Yeah. So she's like, this seems very, very weird. It must have been like once the curtain was unveiled, like she probably is just like seeing all everything now. It's like Wizard of Oz. Everything's in color now. Yeah. 
So Carrie was suffering from anxiety and had very real fears about her husband. So her mother suggested that she talk once more to counselor Joanne Bristol. In her session, which Matt insisted on bringing her to and from, ugh, Carrie revealed that she was managing her grief just fine. What she was worried about was her marriage. She believed that Matt was having an affair and feared that he was trying to kill her. She thought the crushed up pills were all part of like a thwarted poisoning plan. So scary. Carrie echoed the same sentiments to a colleague friend named Shay while supervising recess together the next day. She then kind of backtracked and she was like, you know what? I'm being ridiculous. Like, of course, my husband's not trying to kill me. I just I'm having these really bad gut feelings. And she did write in her Bible that evening, Lord, I am asking you to protect me from harm. I am not sure what is going on with Matt, but Lord, help me find peace with him. You are so mighty, Lord. I love you. It was clear that Carrie was scared, alone, and suspicious, but she also still deeply loved Matt and their family and wanted to make it work. So she decided she was being paranoid and that she would do her best to repair her fraught relationship. I feel like Is her family being supportive of her right now? Or is she kind of like ostracized herself from her family because of her like companion? They managed to really stay with her for the most part. But I think that they managed to stay in her life by not criticizing Matt. You know, like if they had, I think he would have whisked her away and they would have never been able to talk to their daughter again. Yes, and they they were walking a fine line. They were walking a fine line. And she also didn't tell her mom about her fears about the affair. She just told her mom like... It was kind of weird. I found these crushed up pills. This was his excuse, you know? And Linda was like, that's really weird. Like, so she wasn't telling everybody everything. She was telling like two of her friends, like the thing about the affair. She told Joanne Bristol, the counselor, but her mother, her aunts and her cousin didn't know all of her fears. It would be so hard for me to have any sort of like filter with you if like you were in a relationship like that like I feel like I would literally be just like shaking you and be like look at what's going like I like oh my god do you remember (laughs) wait guys Andy and I were at an event when I had like the psycho ex like I truly a terrible human being and abusive and you had just broken up with him I had just broken up with him and I had just started dating Nathaniel Also, I had so many red flags. I went from like one abusive boyfriend immediately into a new relationship and then married him in five months. So (laughs) here we are eight years later, super happy, two kids, but like, wow, I had red flags. But yeah, at this event, which Andy and I were both working, my ex-boyfriend showed up and like stormed over to me and Andy threw her tiny little body between us and she was like, don't look at her. Jesse, look away, look away. You're telling me like not to look him in the eyes like he's gonna like memorize (laughs) mesmerize me or hypnotize me. Don't look at him. Look away. And he's, and she's like pointing at him and she's like, you get out of here. <laughs> oh God, guys, I hope that you all have a friend in your life like Andy Cassette because she is truly the best. <laughs> that was epic. That was like a real brave moment for me. I mean, but he was pretty short. He was, he was powerfully built, though. I, I feel like he was he had powerfully like, built, but he was like a little like he had an he had like an elfin look to him, you know. Yeah. Oh my was, god! Wow. Okay. Anyways, yes, I think that her you'll see like the the character of her aunts and cousin come out later in this story, and I definitely think if they knew everything that was going on, they would have been fighting harder. But at the same time. They're all Baptists. They're all very religious. And you usually work through your marriages. You don't encourage them to leave. You know, you encourage them to go to church and get counseling and work on it. You know, 
Even when he's like a full-time creep? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not very religious, so I can't tell you, you know? I don't know either. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. So, yeah, she decided she wanted to work on that, but she was also making moves in her career. She was currently teaching third grade, but she had always dreamed of teaching middle school English. So on Friday, April 7th, 2006, she went to an interview at a different school and interviewed for exactly that position. And she absolutely crushed the interview and talked to several people that day about how excited she was for this new opportunity. So Carrie had taken the day off for the interview, so she ran some errands afterwards at Walmart where she ran into Shannon Gamble, a mother of one of her third graders. Shannon noted that Carrie was in exceptionally good mood. The principal of the middle school also received an equally upbeat thank you email that afternoon after their interview. However, something drastic must have happened in the late afternoon because by the time Carrie appeared at Kenzie's 5.15 p.m. swim team practice, she was visibly upset. Two other mothers noted that Carrie's eyes were red and she and Matt, who was also at the practice, appeared to be fighting. So after practice, Matt said that they went to take the girls for pizza, but the wait was too long at the restaurant. So they instead picked up Happy Meals at the McDonald's drive-thru. Matt claimed that Carrie wasn't feeling well. She wasn't very hungry. And she only ate about two French fries. And then she actually vomited them up when they arrived home. No one would hear from the bakers again until Matt picked up the phone to call 911 just a little after midnight. So Matt calls 911 and he says that he believes his wife has committed suicide. He says that Carrie's lips are blue, that she's not breathing, that there's no pulse, and that she has left a note. The 911 operator instructs Matt to perform CPR until the EMTs arrive, which he indicates that he is doing. But when the EMTs do arrive only four minutes and 28 seconds after his call, they find him not in the bedroom, and I think this is why he was caught off guard, though, because they were apparently like they were like in the area or something. So when he's on the phone with them, he says he's performing CPR. The EMTs pulled up in four minutes and 28 seconds, but they didn't have their siren on. They just like pulled up. So he didn't get any warning that they were coming. And he was literally like on the phone saying that he was doing CPR and they saw him on the porch, obviously not in the bedroom, not doing CPR. Get the fuck out. Uh-huh. So they noticed that that was weird. The cops came as well and they found Carrie dressed in a Snoopy Santa sleep shirt and underwear on the floor. And they immediately noticed that she looked pretty deceased. Nonetheless, they began CPR. But one of the EMTs noted that Carrie was already cool to the touch and she had already developed lividity, which is, of course, the purplish coloring that occurs when the heart stops beating and blood pools in the lower parts of the body, which obviously those things need somebody to be passed away for a certain amount of time. So they transport Carrie to the hospital and she is announced dead upon arrival. Oh my God. Both the EMT and the paramedic on the scene noted that Matt's story kept changing and that they were getting frustrated trying to figure out how long his wife had been unresponsive. It shouldn't be. I mean, obviously, like, I can imagine that you'd be like completely out of your mind trying to like answer questions, but you're going to be able to tell if the guy's being suspicious. Oh yeah. And that's what they said. It was, it was just very weird. He was 
not emotional about it, but he kept seeming to change his story. Like any new information he got, like if they were like, wow, like it seems like, you know, she hasn't been responsible for a while. He'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I meant 15 minutes instead of 10 minutes. Like, you know, like he was, he would change his stories based on whatever new information they fed him. He's like, you didn't, you couldn't tell I was doing CPR from the porch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically this is what he said happened according to Deadly Little Secrets. The way Matt described what had happened, he'd been gone for about 45 minutes and returned to find Carrie in bed and not breathing. And he later told Linda that she was awake when he left and speaking. So where had he gone for that 45 minutes? He said, my wife asked me to put gas in the SUV and pick up a movie at Hollywood Video. Speaking of video stores. Yeah. When a man loves a woman, the movie we saw on our first date. I left the house about 1115, he said. When I got back just before midnight, the bedroom door was locked. I had to use a screwdriver to get in. She was nude in the bed. I called 911 and then I dressed her, pulled her off the bed and started CPR while I was talking to the dispatcher. You dressed her? Yeah. And that and that comes up later. We'll talk more about that. I found a note on the nightstand, he then said. In the bedroom, the detective looked and found a sheet of white printer paper. The note read, Matt, I am so sorry. I am so tired. I just wanted to sleep for a while. Please forgive me. Tell Kenzie and Grace that I love them very much. Tell my mom and dad that I love them too. I love you, Matt. I am so sorry for the past few weeks. I want to give Cassidy a hug. I need to feel her again. Please continue to be the great dad to our little girls. Love them every day for me. I am sorry. I love you. Carrie. Is it in her handwriting? Oh, no. That's what I was just going to ask you. Guess how do you think this note appears? It's typed. It's typed. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Including her name on computer paper, like printed out from the computer. From the porn hub. <laughs> Pornhub.com. From the porn hub. <laughs> Yes, beside the note was a Unisom container with only two pills remaining. Irving asked about Carrie's medications and Matt told him that Carrie was on weight loss pills and that she took a Unisom every night to sleep. So Matt said that she'd also drank two Bartles and James Fuzzy Navel wine coolers and the empty bottles were still on the nightstand. Matt told responding officers that she had been depressed and suicidal since Cassidy's death seven years earlier. So the police on the scene called the area justice of the peace to decide how to go forward. On the phone, one of the sergeants described the scene, the suicide note and the unisom, the bottles, etc., and that the Baptist minister said his wife was depressed and talked often of suicide. So the JP, this guy, Billy Martin, decided just based off of the phone call, he didn't go to the scene. He didn't do any investigation. Ruled Carrie's death a suicide and decided against an autopsy. Stop. Yep. Just no investigation whatsoever. Oh my God. Yeah. Catherine Casey said that she really wanted to write this book to bring awareness to investigation of suicide and that they should all be investigated as homicides because this is so flagrant. I don't know if I told you, but like the episode that I was listening to recently of Sinisterhood, it covered the same exact thing. This girl named Ellen Green. And it was because she had struggled with like depression or anxiety. They just ruled it a suicide, even though the wounds to her body, there was like no way. There were like stab wounds in the back and they were like suicide. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, at least this makes a little bit more sense than that. Totally. The one that they covered was insane. Like... But that's just, they should never, they should always investigate it. You're going to call it over the phone? 
Or do an autopsy at the very least. So Linda received a call from Matt that her daughter, who just that day had called her bubbling over in excitement over her amazing interview, had committed suicide and was dead. So Linda was in shock because literally she, it was like the happiest she had heard her daughter in a long time that day. Like looking forward, she really wanted this job. Like a friend of hers on the staff of the new school was like, they loved you. You crushed it. Like you're definitely in like the, in the top two, you know? So Linda's completely in shock. So she immediately drove over to Matt and Carrie's house where she questioned Matt and the police on the scene. And they told her that Carrie had overdosed on Unisom. I was going to ask you, is that a thing? No, it's not really. Like, we'll we'll get into it a little bit later. Okay, Linda does some sorry. research. <laughs> no, but it's it's very, very, very hard to overdose on Unisom. Okay. She was like, this seems insane to me. She, of course, called her sister Nancy. Nancy called her daughter Lindsay. And Lindsay was immediately like, Mom, you know she didn't kill herself. And Nancy's like, I know. Lindsay's like, Matt did it. We know this. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And so Sister Kay had also found out and she called counselor Joanne Bristol, who insisted on coming over to Kay's house. I guess it was like the middle of the night and Joanne's like, I have to come over. I have to talk to you because I saw Carrie this week and she was not suicidal. She was not depressed in this way. She was fearful about her marriage and she was worried that her husband was going to try to kill her. Whoa. And so she tells Kay about the crushed up pills and the briefcase. She's like, yeah, this is, there's more to this than meets the eye. So in the days following Carrie's death, it's clear that there are no plans for investigation. And Linda's sisters, Kay, Nancy, Jennifer, and niece Lindsay are all like, oh, hell no. If we have to investigate and put away this POS ourselves, then we will do it. But the first thing that they have to do is convince Linda that her pastor's son-in-law killed her beloved daughter because, you know, they don't want to be like digging around and making a huge stink about this if Linda doesn't support it. Yep, yep. Linda clearly was having an extremely hard time processing her daughter's death and she didn't want to believe that Matt had something to do with it. But she was put off when Matt changed Carrie's cell phone voicemail message within a week of Carrie's death. So Linda had been called. Like, it What's doesn't even, even make sense. Yeah. yeah. So she had been calling her daughter's phone just to hear her voice again. And within a week, he changed it to, like, the automated, like, you've reached, you know, number, 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 instead of wow. Carrie's voice. Yeah. Wow. And then, only nine days after Carrie's death, Matt gave a completely dry-eyed sermon predicting that Carrie had made, quote, a triumphant entry into heaven. He even seemed jovial at the service, and it wow. struck the Doolins as strange. And Linda was already hearing rumors about Matt spending time with a young blonde woman all over town. Two weeks after Carrie's death, Kenzie celebrated her 10th birthday with a sleepover party. One of the other mothers reported that the young blonde had been there when she dropped <gasps> off her child and when she picked her up. So ostensibly, this woman had stayed the night even worse, and we're talking only two weeks after Carrie's death, friends reported that all of the pictures of Carrie had disappeared from the home and now a photo of Matt with his new blonde girlfriend, Vanessa, and their daughters was stuck to the fridge. Whoa. But despite all of this, when her sisters and niece confronted Linda about Matt murdering Carrie, she still refused to believe it. Lindsay had even called poison control and was told it was nearly impossible to overdose on Unisom. They begged Linda to see it their way. They told her what Joanne Bristol had said about the crushed up pills that Matt had had and worrying about the affair. 
but still Linda refused to participate. It was only after Matt began to alienate Kenzie and Grace from her and Jim that she realized something was truly wrong. Linda had emailed Matt about his relationship with Vanessa. And so essentially what happened is that Matt was saying all these awful things to people like coworkers of his or people at the church. Like when they tried to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. He was like, well, you know, she really wasn't much of a mother anyway. Or they'd be like, how are the girls doing? And he'd be like, "Uh, they weren't really close to her. So they don't care. Really? Yeah. And so obviously people were aghast and this trickled back to Linda. So Linda was hearing all these rumors. So she sent him an email to like clear the air. And she was like, hey, I've heard that you're saying these terrible things about Carrie and that you also are dating already. And your late wife. Yes. The mother of your children. So, hey, tell me I'm wrong. Like, A, tell me that that's that people misconstrue that and I'll believe you. And B, if you are dating this young woman, like we'd love to know about it. We want to know who's spending time with our granddaughters. We're not like, it seems a bit fast for us, but like, we'd like to know what your intentions are, you know? And Matt had shown the emails to his 10-year-old daughter saying that her grandmother was mean to him and that she couldn't move on and that Kenzie should be angry with her grandparents. So when Kenzie showed up for a visit at her grandparents' house, she was refusing to speak to Linda. So Linda pulled her into a separate room and was like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, you're mean to my father. And my daddy says you won't move on. And you don't like Vanessa, but we like Vanessa and we don't think it's too soon. And we don't like you. Wow. So it was like this total, like within a couple months of Carrie's passing, all of a sudden Matt has already started turning at least Kenzie, yeah, Mm -hmm. against Carrie's parents. So that night, Matt exchanged more angry emails with Linda, telling her essentially to butt out of his business and even, like, saying that she somehow had hurt Kenzie when she, like, pulled her into another room, like she was abusive somehow. Oh. So that Mother's Day, they had already made plans to do something to honor Carrie, and he did honor that, and they did end up getting together with the Doolins, but that was the very last time that Kenzie and Grace would spend time with their grandparents without a court order. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So Linda, you know, is now getting a little bit more skeptical because this behavior is very suspicious. So she had earlier, like a couple years earlier, Matt and Carrie had fallen on some hard times financially, obviously, because Matt can't keep a job, you know? And so she had allowed them to be on her family plan and was paying their phone bill. Okay. So she got her phone bill and realized like she was still paying Matt's bill. He was still on her family plan. And she got so angry. She called Lindsay and she was like, I think I'm just going to cancel his plan because I'm so angry with him. And Lindsay was like, no, let's get those phone records. Let's see who he's been calling. Let's do some investigation. Yeah. So Lindsay comes over, they call AT&T and they request that the last three months of the phone records be sent to them. And the guy's like, sure, doing it right now. Uh, But also you guys, you can just go online and look it up. All of the records are online. I'll tell you where to go. And so they're like, okay. So they immediately log in and they see that he's made hundreds of calls since late December to Vanessa. And even worse, he has been calling and talking to Carrie's phone since her death for like a hundred minutes. And so they realize that after her death, why he changed the recording was because he gave the cell phone to Vanessa. It's so gross. So gross. So at this point, Linda's like, okay, 
here's his motive. He was definitely having an affair just like Carrie thought he was. And I do believe now he killed her. Like, and she was still like hoping she was wrong. She was like, I just want an investigation to see whether that's even a possibility, you know? And she agreed that she was going to fight for an investigation. But Matt was totally tipped off because AT&T sent the phone records to his address instead of Linda's. So he gets these phone records in the mail that he didn't request and he knows that somebody had requested them. So immediately he went out and shopped for new cell phones and got new cell phones for him and Vanessa. Yeah, but that doesn't change. The records are still there. Yeah. 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 There's nothing he can do to erase that. And also Linda had already like printed out records and made copies, you know, like that was existing. Soon the women were all out investigating, calling Linda Charlie and Nancy Kay and Lindsay were her angels. So yeah, so like basically Linda would call and be like, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is Nancy, will you go to the Hollywood video and request the surveillance video footage? And Nancy's like, on it, Charlie. Oh my God. (laughs) So cool. So Nancy did do that. And well, the manager wouldn't give her the surveillance footage she did hold it aside for law enforcement. So it might've been like taped over if Nancy hadn't gone and like been like, hold this tape, you know? So yeah, and Linda did a little bit more research into Unisom and what she found were cases of children who took three times more of the drug than prescribed and still didn't die, like small kids. When someone did overdose, it appeared that the result was a very slow death, which didn't seem to fit Matt's story. After all, he told Linda and Jim that Carrie had been awake when he left and that he was only gone for 45 minutes. That meant she had to ingest the drugs and die all before the time he returned. She said, I'm not an expert, but that doesn't make sense, especially considering that her body was ice cold and she already had lividity. Yep. For as hard as they were fighting, though, the Hewitt PD just didn't seem to care. In their opinion, it was a suicide and a family that just couldn't accept that their daughter slash sister slash cousin committed suicide. Through an acquaintance, Linda met Matt Cawthorn, who was a Texas Ranger, and begged him to join the investigation. Cawthorn believed Linda that something was awry, but encouraged her to talk to the chief of police. Like, basically, he's like, you have to go through the proper channels. If you want the Texas Rangers involved, which I think you should, you have to go to the chief of police and basically make sure they're doing everything they can to investigate this, make sure they exhume the body, you know? And if he still says no, Then you write to the DA and you ask the DA to put the Texas Rangers on it because the police aren't investigating. Okay. So Linda did do this. And with pressure coming from the chief of police, 52 days after Carrie's death, Matt was finally interviewed. But they did kind of give him softball questions and they didn't seem to pressure him that much. So they asked him to submit to a polygraph, which he agreed to schedule. But of course, the next day, his newly hired attorney called and said there was no way he was going to do a polygraph. Wow. Meanwhile, people at Crossroads Baptist became uncomfortable with Matt's relationship with Vanessa so soon after his wife's death and also, you know, suspicion about how she died. Yeah. That he was actually asked to step down as a minister. Good. Mm Mm-hmm. Matt decided at this point to move away from the Doolins and Waco and back to Kerrville so his mother, Barbara, could help him with the girls. And he wanted Vanessa and Lily to move in with them. Only weeks after Carrie died, Matt had approached Vanessa's father to get permission to date his daughter and was seen in Kay Jewelers with Vanessa picking out engagement rings. A week after. It was like two weeks after. That is mind-blowing. 
Yes. So tongues were wagging and the community was becoming divided about like people who thought Matt certainly had something to do with it and people who were still very supportive of Matt, but also agreed that it was unseemly that he was dating so quickly. Yep. Having gotten basically nowhere with the local police, Linda and Jim wrote to the DA to request that the Texas Rangers get put on the case. But when they received a response, it was not what they had hoped for. The DA encouraged them to accept the suicide ruling and stated emphatically, my office is not involved and won't become involved in the inquiry at this stage. In desperation, Jim and Linda canvassed all of their friends and family to ask for help and were introduced to a former federal prosecutor named Bill Johnston, who is now in private practice. Linda said in their first meeting, I don't want you to assume my son-in-law did anything wrong. I just want the truth. So Bill was intrigued. He definitely thought there was something there. And he told Linda that she didn't have to hire him right away. He was going to put his two best investigators on the case. And if they dug anything up, then it would be time for them to hire him. So they begin investigating and they find out right off the bat that not only did Matt definitely have a relationship with Vanessa Bowles, and he seemed to be continuing to have one, that he had also collected nearly $52,000 from Carrie's retirement fund, as well as social security benefits. Also, Matt had stolen a computer from his job at the Waco Youth Center, which may have contained evidence. So he ends up getting fired from that job too, because he like is being very squirrely about where his computer is. And then he's like, tried to switch it for another computer and they like caught him in a lie. And then he's like, I don't know, somebody must've stolen it, you know? When clearly he was getting, trying to destroy evidence. Also by this point, a crossroads minister had come across Carrie's Bible and had read the passages where Carrie wrote about fearing Matt. So he copied the pages and sent them to the police department. The Hewitt PD was now getting heat from the Texas Rangers. Like Bill Cawthorn was going in and being like, hey, like, I'm not going to step on your toes, guys. But like, you got to investigate this situation or, or hand it over to the Texas Rangers, you know? Yep. And they were getting heat from Bill Johnston, too, because his private investigators were on this case as well. So the police department finally decides to exhume Carrie's body. When Matt found out about this, he rushed to the cemetery to confirm whether it was true. And it was. Carrie's body was missing and had been clearly dug up. But then he did something really strange. He ran over to Cassidy's grave. And apparently he called Vanessa in relief that they hadn't exhumed his daughter as well. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, Vanessa later said that she Who thought saw that, that it was Vanessa. His girlfriend was on the phone with him. She later told people that he like she she was like, he's like, I'm running over to Cassidy's grave now. And he's like, oh, thank God they didn't dig her up, too. And she said it in a way that sounded like he was trying to cover something up. Yeah, that's so scary. Could you imagine dating him with your little daughter? Yeah, especially when he's like, wow, your daughter reminds me so much of my deceased daughter that now she's suspecting he may have killed. Yeah, no thanks. Bye. The autopsy results were not exactly what the Doolins wanted to hear. Because Carrie had been embalmed, the toxicology report was compromised. Essentially, you know, they usually take the blood to determine how much of any substance is in your body. But when they embalm you, they drain you of blood and fill you with embalming fluid. So there was no blood to test. So they had to go into her muscle tissue. Now, when they test your muscle tissue, they can tell if there's trace evidence of substances in there, but they can't tell you how much. So, like they can't tell you like how much a person has been drinking or how much medication a person Won't has be taken. A specific. 
Yeah. So in her tissue, they found traces of fentermine, the diet drug, Unisom, but also Ambien, though they couldn't tell the amount, which was very suspicious because Carrie had told everybody that she didn't take Ambien and she didn't like the way that it made her feel, but also she didn't have a prescription for it currently, so they don't know where she would have gotten it. Now, can you overdose on Ambien? Yes, you can. Absolutely. And they, but there was like no Ambien pill or container nearby her or anything. And they also said, though, that her results didn't seem consistent with an overdose at all. Apparently that you, you would have some like pill containers or like something that resembled like pill waste like in your stomach. And she did not have any of that. Okay. They also checked her lungs to see if maybe she did overdose and she vomited and she choked on it. And she maybe like inhaled the vomit, you know? Yeah. But her lungs were completely clear. So so crazy that they didn't check all this right after she passed. I know. And they would have been able to get a clearer toxicology report, obviously. Of course. You know? So at this point, the medical examiner ruled the death inconclusive, which is better than suicide, but not as good as homicide, obviously. With the new ruling and evidence becoming uncovered about Matt's multiple sexual assaults, Bill Johnston decides to take the case and he files a wrongful death lawsuit in civil court on behalf of the Doolins. So this was at this point the only avenue allowed to them. So they didn't really want money or anything. They just wanted justice. They wanted to keep investigating this, you know? Yeah, this was basically the only avenue that was left to them. Meanwhile, it appeared that life wasn't turning out so peachy for old Matt. In August, rumors spread that Matt and Vanessa had already split. She confirmed the rumors when she was finally interviewed by the police, though she did try to initially deny that they were romantic whatsoever. She claimed all of the talking on the phone was just Matt counseling her about her divorce. And all of the occasions that people saw them together was just them getting their kids together, like basically having playdates, which didn't make any sense. The baby's a baby. Nobody's playing with the baby, you know? Yeah. She did admit that she was aware that Matt had feelings for her and that she couldn't say for sure whether he didn't kill his wife or daughter. She was like, I don't know. I think maybe he's capable of that. So Bill Johnson hired a crime scene and blood spatter expert who ripped apart Matt's explanation of what happened the night Carrie died. There was absolutely no way she would have been ice cold and experiencing lividity if she had died in the 45 minutes that he was away from the house. Also, Carrie at the time of her death weighed 197 pounds. He was like, there's absolutely no conceivable way that you could take 197 pounds of dead weight, dress it, get it off the bed, put it on the floor and do CPR all in four and a half minutes. No. No way. Uh, Yeah. No. You absolutely couldn't do it while also talking on the phone. No. Yeah. He also noted that Carrie had bruising on her nose and lips. It was the expert's opinion that the bruising was the result of being smothered. Whoa. That in fact, Carrie had died from being drugged so she was incapacitated and then smothered with a pillow. Whoa. So the police department starts taking the investigation seriously. And though they can't find Matt's computer, they are able to access the network that it was attached to, basically like on the server. Yep. So they can find out what he was up to even without the computer itself. So of course, they find a cripe ton of porn as well as hits to sites such as sexless.com, hornymatches.com, bustydustystash.com, and I want a new girlfriend.com. They also found in his email 
like a travel company congratulating him on his recent engagement and helping him plan a Fiji honeymoon. Whoa. Yep. But the most damning thing was that they found Google searches for, quote, overdose on sleeping pills and a history of trying to buy Ambien and Roofies online. Oh, my God. Wow. Yep. With this new evidence, Matt is finally arrested. He gets an attorney named Guy James Gray, who actually really believed that he was innocent. Guy James Gray believed that this was just totally a suicide, that this guy was getting railroaded by an unhappy family, that this was a witch hunt. And Matt was released on a $200,000 bond. But when the DA failed to move forward with the case in three months, the charges were automatically dropped. Uh, what? Yeah. So I guess the DA didn't think that they had enough to prosecute at that point. And I I guess the law is that if you are charged with a crime and the DA doesn't move forward within a set amount of time, that immediately the charges are dropped. Oh my God, that's terrifying. So yeah, the Doolins were naturally devastated by this outcome. So they ended up picking back up the civil case with Bill Johnston. They just will not quit. I mean, I give them so much credit here. Like they must be exhausted. They're getting alienated from their grandchildren. Their daughter is deceased and they just keep fighting and they keep doing everything they can to bring her killer to justice. Yep. So around this time, too, a woman who was Matt's hairdresser came to Linda, actually, through a mutual friend and was like, I believe something happened with Carrie because I thought Matt was innocent. However, I went like I invited him home. They went on a date and like she invited him back to her house and he became really scary, aggressively sexual. Like she did end up having sex with him and she said it was mostly consensual, but that he was rude, filthy, aggressive, angry, like, like violent in a way that she didn't want during sex, you know? So basically during this civil case, they depose Matt and they had previously tried to depose Matt and he had just pled the fifth the whole time. But this time he talks and they catch him in a lie and they begin to kind of chip away at his credibility in this deposition from Deadly Secrets here's how the end of this deposition went. Did you go out with a girl who cut your hair? Johnston asked with a slight smile. This is what the attorney had been waiting for. Did I go out with a girl who cut my hair? Matt looked as if he had been slapped across the face. Did you go out with a woman who cut your hair and ended up at her house? Yes, we did, Matt admitted, looking very uncomfortable. You were intimate, kissing, right? We did kiss, correct, Matt said. Then Johnston cornered Baker, asking, you had sex that night, didn't you? Baker had repeatedly over the three plus hours of the deposition said that he had not been intimate with anyone since Carrie's death. But now he must have known that Johnston knew about his one night stand, about the woman who described a night the ex-pastor made her feel dirty and used. Matt, however, in his continual stance of maintaining that he was the one who helped others, answered with the seemingly bizarre statement, no, what we did was that I uh, gratified her. Apparently, he saw his actions in bed that night, not as sex, but as a service he was providing. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. To drive his point home that Matt Baker had been caught lying under oath, Johnston asked, and every answer you've given me to one question has been just as truthful and just as important as each other question, isn't it? Yes, sir, Baker said, still defiant. So he's like, if you're lying about this, I bet you're lying about a lot more in this deposition. 
So in January of 2009, the DA decided to reinvestigate the case, and they believed that Vanessa Bowles was at the center of the crime and had not previously been honest with them. So they subpoena her to testify in front of a grand jury, and they stress to her that if she isn't honest with them, she could not only be arrested for perjury, but also for accomplice to murder. Yep. Scared and finally telling the truth, Vanessa testified that Matt had told her that he had killed his wife to be with her. Oh, my God. Yeah. The grand jury was stunned. And that very same afternoon, Matt was indicted on the charge of murder. Vanessa had to have been so scared. Oh, I mean, guys, this is, you know, Andy and I always drive home the point that it is the responsibility of the person in the relationship not to have an affair, not the additional person, although you should try not to, obviously. But yeah, this is another reason not to get involved with a married man. You could end up in the newspapers being called a mistress all over the place, potentially going down as an accomplice to a murderer. Like it's so scary. It's so scary. Yeah. And she was scared for her life too, because she knew he had murdered at least one person. So she thought if she didn't keep a secret, he could potentially murder her. Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. So yeah, Matt had been lying to his attorney and Guy James Gray was somebody who had previously been a prosecutor and he believed that there's just so many people that are unfairly convicted and that's why he went into private practice. Okay. And so he did not like representing people who are liars or obviously murderers. And so he had asked Matt several times, like, did you do it? Did you have a romantic relationship with Vanessa? All of this stuff. And Matt had lied to his face over and over again that nothing romantic or sexual had ever happened with Vanessa. And now he's finding out that this woman has just testified before a grand jury that not only did they have a romantic and sexual relationship, that he confided in her that he murdered his wife. So at this point... At this point, Gray was so angry that he actually tried to drop Matt as a client. He filed motions in which he asked to be removed from the case, citing a serious breach of confidence. I would do the same thing. Yeah, but the judge ruled against him. He said that new counsel could delay the upcoming trial by months and months. And the judge refused to let that happen because, you know, so much time had gone by since when Carrie was murdered and when they were finally getting a trial. So the judge was like, I don't want to delay justice any longer. So Gray was stuck with Matt Baker and Matt was stuck with an attorney who hated his guts. I was going to ask, is there any sort of like legal ethical obligation from the defense lawyer that you have to provide? I mean, you have to provide the best defense you possibly can, regardless of your distaste for your client. Regardless of the truth being out about the fact that he's a murderer? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that's your your ethical and moral duty as a defense attorney is to provide the best defense for your client no matter what. That's I crazy. mean, you're allowed to not take clients, um, which is what he tried oh, to do. But if you've been deceived in this situation. Well, then you're stuck. He still has to, he has to give him the best defense he can or else they can, you know, appeal it later on. Wow. You know? And he even said himself in the book to Catherine Casey, like, they really should have let me off this case because I hated Matt so much that I only- He wasn't going to do the best job. No, he's like, I only spoke to him when legally necessary. Yeah. You know? So obviously this is not looking good for Matt going into the trial, which began on January 13th, 2010. 
So the state presented all of the evidence that we've discussed, including the new medical examiner's description of the abrasions around Carrie's nose and mouth indicating smothering. But the sordid story only really came to light with star witness Vanessa's testimony. Vanessa testified that an affair began in early 2006. It began with Matt complaining about Carrie and their marriage, even going as far to call Carrie a fat bitch and criticize her as a mother. Holy shit. So I'm sorry, Vanessa. Like, I know you were put in a bad situation, but if that's how a man talks about his ex, his current wife, whatever, you need to not be with him. Like, that is, that's it. That's just he's showing you his character, you know? So yeah, by February, Vanessa had agreed to private counseling sessions at the baker's house and the relationship turned sexual. Vanessa claimed that she felt guilty, but Matt told her that God loved her and forgave her. Oh God. But that wasn't- No pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. But that wasn't the only sin Matt had on his mind. Within weeks of betting Vanessa, he told her he was madly in love with her and he planned to get rid of Carrie so he could be with her and marry her. Matt told her that Carrie was suicidal and wanted to die. So he'd essentially be just doing her a favor. Okay, Kevorkian. Mm-hmm. Besides, he feared the professional fallout from getting a divorce as a Baptist minister. He needed for Carrie to die and nothing less. From Deadly Little Secrets, here is some of Vanessa's chilling testimony. Vanessa said from that point on, there were breathless discussions of murder. One day, Matt talked of killing Carrie by putting drugs in a milkshake, saying he'd tried it, but the milkshake tasted like lead, and Carrie refused to drink it. It was heartless. A husband talking of staging a hanging or a drive-by shooting, coolly plotting his wife's murder while his mistress listened and took no action to stop him. As time passed, it appeared that Matt grew more desperate to erase Carrie from his life, telling Vanessa he had attempted to buy Rufy's, the date rape drug, to render her helpless. That final week, Matt bragged that he was doing the husbandly duty, having sex with Carrie to make it appear he was attempting to work on their marriage. When Vanessa asked if anyone would question the faked suicide plan Matt had concocted, he said, no, everybody knows how depressed she is. That Saturday morning, even though Matt had told Vanessa that he had planned to kill Carrie the previous night, Vanessa was still stunned when the phone rang and her mother told her that Carrie was dead. Two days later, Matt first said, you know you're stuck with me, right? Then she said he told her about the murder, but he began by cautioning her that if she told anyone, it wouldn't matter because everyone would believe him because he was a preacher. Okay. And I mean, he has gotten away with all of this. He said, she said shit before, so. Yep. Of course he thinks that. I'll tell you this once, but never again, he said. And then Vanessa shared a horrifying story, one in which Matt poured Ambien into the shells of a sex stimulant capsule and fed them to Carrie with the wine coolers and then handcuffed her to the bed. He was basically saying, do you want to spice things up? Let's try these like herbal sex stimulants and then get a little freaky with the handcuffs. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So she was doing this because she wanted to improve their marriage. Of course. And he took total advantage of that. When she passed out, he kissed her on the forehead and said, give Cassidy a kiss for me. Then Matt Baker put a pillow over his wife's face to smother her. Yet Carrie didn't die. Instead, after he removed the pillow, she gasped. 
Matt told Bowles, he said, oh, shit, then climbed on top of Carrie, this time cupping his hand over her mouth and nose and squeezing them shut. Afterward, he typed the suicide note on the home computer and printed it out on the printer and then ran the palm of Carrie's hand over it. The scene was set with the pills and the empty wine cooler bottles on the nightstand. And then he locked the door and left and went and ran his errands. Wow. Yeah, the details were obviously appalling, and the court was shocked. It was impossible for Matt to recover from it. Originally, his attorney had planned to put him on the stand in his own defense, but they had gotten wind of the fact that the prosecution was going to have him demonstrate with a 197-pound dummy how he dressed Carrie, rolled her off the bed, and performed CPR all in four and a half minutes while on the phone. Wow. Oh, my God. So attorney guy knew that he'd fail and that he couldn't have that spectacle in front of the jury, obviously. So he declined to put Matt on the stand at all. Well, unsurprisingly, after a five-hour deliberation, the jury delivered a guilty verdict and Matt was sentenced to 65 years behind bars for the murder of his wife. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, though, the fight was not over for Linda and Jim. Matt and his parents had had full custody of Kenzie and Grace in the past four years between Carrie's death and Matt's trial, and the Bakers had completely poisoned the girls against her mother's family. Okay. So they had barely seen them. Basically, Matt's family was like, this was a suicide. Your mother committed suicide. Your grandparents are doing this horrible thing, railroading your father evilly. They convinced them that somehow the Doolins had like the justice system in their pocket and that they were pulling all the strings and that it wasn't like a court that decided this. It was the grandparents. So they made a very, very bad situation with these children. And originally, like after Matt was sent to prison, Linda and Jim tried to work out a custody agreement with the Bakers. They were like, hey, you know, we we want to share custody. We don't want to take them away from, you know, the only home they've known of these last four years in Kerrville, you know. And Barbara and Oscar refused to speak with them. So Linda and Jim were forced to file for sole custody. And they filed a month after Matt went to prison, but the wheels of justice were very slow. So it took over a year for there to be a custody trial, another year in which they had full access of the girls to continue to brainwash them. (sighs) So the Doolins hired a private investigator to help prove that the girls would be best off with them. And the PI set to find and interview the foster children that lived with the Bakers during the decade that they were group home parents. What they found shocked and sickened them. So trigger warning, there's going to be mention of sexual assault and child sexual abuse right now. Apparently, the perverted apple doesn't fall far from the tree because three women who had been foster children got up on that stand and testified to molestation, sexual assault, and rape by Oscar Baker, Matt's father. Uh, Yeah, I mean, of course, right? He had to learn it somewhere. I mean, this behavior so young over and over again. Yep. He had sickeningly targeted vulnerable young girls, including one who was severely mentally handicapped. Stop. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but listening to this testimony was heart-wrenching. 
about what these girls went through. And one girl even said, like on cross-examination, they were like, well, you were once like let out of the home and then you elected to come back. And she was like, I didn't have any other family. Yeah, I'm sure she didn't have anything to eat. I had nowhere to go. (laughs) Like they were the only people I knew. Like, and I figured that like, if he was molesting me, maybe he wouldn't molest the other girls, you know? That's your cross-examination is asking a young girl who is in need of a home why she went back. Like, come on. Exactly. It was, it was heartbreaking. And one of the women, you know, testified to some very horrible graphic descriptions of rape. And they asked her if she could prove that this happened. Was there anything about his body? And she was like, he wasn't circumcised. And the bakers did not refute that fact. Like if he had been, they would have been like, oops, nope, actually here, this is medical testimony that he is or whatever. They could not refute that. And they really couldn't refute the abuse. And the women also testified that Barbara was very emotionally abusive and even kind of physically abusive and often called the girls terrible names and was really mean to them. They could only find one foster children from that entire decade that would speak up on the Baker side. And it was a man, of course. So he didn't suffer the abuse that these girls went through. And he was just like, I was there for a few months and they were so lovely and I never saw any abuse. And that was like, and they had like five women come forward. So basically at this point, even though Kenzie took the stand herself and stated that her wish was that she remain with Matt's parents, the judge could not in good conscience leave these children, these young girls. Young girls. Uh huh. In custody of this monster. So the Doolins were awarded Full custody of Kenzie and Grace. Yay. Yes. I mean, I I feel terribly because apparently like the girls cried when this happened. Of and course. It's a change. But it's a change. It's for the best. Oh, absolutely. 100%. So as of Catherine Casey's publication of the book in 2012, she said that the road to healing the rift was going to be a long and arduous one, but Linda was confident with love, support, and God's grace that love would really trump evil and that the family would find a way back to peace and happiness. And it does sound like those girls had a great extended family of powerful aunts and cousins, great feminine energy. So I hope that they are thriving and I wish that this heroic family just continues to have the utmost happiness. They didn't find anything out about Cassidy, huh? No. So they said that there was some stuff that was very sketchy. He had also told Vanessa something about removing Cassidy's trach like that night, like when she was supposed to have a monitor on and she didn't, which obviously would affect her breathing. And she thought that was very sketchy. And there was a scene in the hospital that Linda witnessed where he was like, well, let me just take her trach out now that she's dead. And Carrie was like, don't touch my child. Like she was like holding her dead child and was like, don't you dare touch her body. And he was like trying to physically remove the trach. Like it seemed like there was a possibility that he had done something to the trach and then like popped it back in, like to kill her and then put it back in. And then he was afraid that a medical professional would see that it was put back in improperly. And so he was trying to like remove it after the fact with witnesses, you know? But there was no, there was not enough proof that they could also prosecute him on her death, you know, and they didn't end up exhuming her, you know? Yeah. So we don't know. There was only suspicion about 
the fact that he might have also murdered Cassidy. And they also just didn't know why, like what the motive would have been, you know, other than like attention, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, he did get Um, disciplined in prison for making obscene sexual gestures to female inmates and staff members. What's his like, does he have a possibility of parole? Yeah, so he's serving 65 years, but I am not sure when his parole is coming up. He lost an appeal recently, and I don't think he has parole like anytime soon. It looks very likely that he will die in prison. Okay. Yeah, as far as I know. I will keep you guys posted if there are any updates on that parole situation. Wow, Jesse. Like I said, it's a sad case. It's a really, really, really sad case, you know, but there's also this heroic side to it, this fight for justice, this feeling that these loved ones wouldn't give up. And I have to say that's like the the silver lining. And of course, that the girls ended up with their very loving grandparents. Yep. All right. If you enjoy Love Murder, please, please, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much, you know, finding new listeners and sending us up the charts. So we really appreciate it, guys. And we would love Jesse to hear Jesse really you. loves the reviews a lot. <laughs> okay. I take it really personally. And like when people say nice things about me, it makes my whole day. So clearly I need to work that out with my better help therapist <laughs> about my, my need for external validation. <laughs> In conclusion, man, even if it's a hard conversation, you should always, always, always tell your girls, tell your loved ones, if their dude is being creepy, it could end up saving a life. Yeah, and here's one way to find out that your dude's being creepy is the constant pop-ups of porn while your kids are trying to play a video game on the computer. Gotta gotta learn how to scrub that shit. Yeah, scrub, scrub it. Incognito window now, use it. And as always... Trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.